Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Banking on Innovation podcast. We have a real special treat today. We have Tom Brown, who's the CEO of Second Curve Capital. They're an equity investment firm focused on financial services. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Jody, it's always good to be with you. So there's a long list of accomplishments, Tom, that I could go over. I'll just go over a couple just so the audience knows who you are. Um, so Tom has been nine time rated the number one bank analyst. He also publishes uh, a weekly called Tom Brown Weekly, Banking Weekly, which I believe almost every prominent uh, banking executive takes note of or reads or shares. <laughs> and then uh, accolades aside, Tom is really distinctive in his thoughtfulness around bank strategy and perhaps the most amazing access to bank CEOs, certainly of, of anyone that I know. He holds a bank CEO retreat. It's a preeminent event for, for banking CEOs and other industry influencers, really just to share thought leadership. And Tom, you're always just a, such a gracious host during the bank CEO event. It's, it's wonderful to be able to participate in it as well. Well, I'm glad you'll be there too. Great. So Tom, let's, let's introduce the audience a little bit more to, uh, to Second Curve. You have a really distinctive position in the market where you've got deep expertise or knowledge in banking. And over the years, I'd like to just have better understand, what have you found that differentiates the Second Curve model? Well, I like the question. Uh, you know, when we started in uh, 2000, the investment business, after all the years in equity research, uh, one of the characteristics I listed as to why you should invest with us was our 20 years of experience. Well, I, I guess I've added to that. So now it's 43 <laughs> years of experience. But I think the other two things that are interesting to me is that I always was focused. So I, I really just focused on the financial services sector. And then within that, I tried to really understand the business. Whereas most analysts, they're too busy to get down and really understand how, for instance, a checking account is opened and, and, and what the frontline employees go through and then what the back office, uh, a call center goes through. So I would visit places uh, that uh, no other analyst uh, has, uh, has visited to try to really understand <laughs> just how the, the business has been done. I, I still think I'm the only analysts that ever asked to meet the head of human resources uh, at, a, at a bank, but uh, I've done that too many times. Great. And, and as an investor in the banking space, how have you had to adapt to markets such as this? And how would you even characterize the market that we're in right now? Well, I love the market that we're in right now, to be honest with you. So the, uh, uh, in my lifetime, there have been three bank stock bull markets. And a bank stock bull market, I define as where the bank stock group outperforms the S&P 500. Two of those three bank stock bull markets were when the, exactly that happened. The market went up and bank stocks went up even more. One of them began in 1989 and one of them began in 2009. Um, the third bull market was in between those two. And that was really from January of uh, 2000 until uh, uh, January 1 of uh, 2007. And that's when we had the tech blow up. So, you know, the, the bank group outperformed by 50%, uh, but much of that came from the, from the overall market being down over that time period. So 
I think a new bull market has just begun for bank stocks. It starts slowly as it did in 1989, and it's going to take out. And, the, and for, it's for the same reasons, which is it's not that things are getting better. It's that people have been so pessimistic that uh, more bad news is priced into the value of these companies than they will actually experience. Fascinating. You know, I was uh, I, I had a chance to to meet with Tim Geithner, the the president at uh, at Warburg Pincus, and somebody, and he was being somewhat pessimistic. So somebody said, "Can you give me some good news?" And he responded by saying, "It can't be as bad as everybody thinks it is." Mm -hmm. So that was his good news in terms of just how we're uh, how we're positioned to to take on some of the. The, uh, the 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 different kind of machinations that are going on in the market right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about deposits, but uh, if you look at what happened to deposits from the time that the pandemic started until March of uh, last year, 2022, and compared to trendline, we had a little more than two trillion dollars of excess deposits in the banking sector. We've lost a trillion dollars. We're probably going to lose another trillion dollars. But then we'll be right back to the, the trend line of the deposits to the industry. It's not something that the, the banking industry can't adjust to. Yeah. You know, you bring such a, such a vast uh, history and set of experiences, and you have a very unique vantage point. Just expound, if you will, what's similar and different in this market environment than from, let's say, the previous rapid interest rate rise, which was in 2008, 2009 timeframe? Well, uh, I'm going to steal a Jamie Dimon line, which is that he thinks the most uh, underappreciated aspect of today versus then is how much better not just J.P. Morgan is, but the entire banking industry at risk management. And, and that includes all areas of risk management. Now, there's going to be exceptions. We saw one exception being SVB uh, earlier this year. Uh, to, with bad asset liability management. For the most part, though, the industry is just much better. They can they know the correlations on their uh, loan portfolios to certain events, and uh, they run stress tests. J.P. Morgan runs 100 different stress tests every week using some outrageous assumptions. So I think the biggest difference that I see today is is better risk management. But then if you consider the 40-plus years the management of this industry has gotten so much better, but so much less fun. I mean, the CEOs of banks in the 80s, you know, were big drinkers and they take you out to dinner. <laughs> and it was more fun to be a bank analyst back then. But Poor Tom. Yeah, these, exactly. <laughs> they're much better now and it's much healthier for me. <laughs> yeah, for probably for both of you. You're probably yeah. on both parties are going to live a lot longer. <laughs> That's funny. You know, one of the things I took away, Tom, from the last CEO retreat, this uh, salient point around there will be greater separation between leaders and laggards. And I actually use that now. Almost every time I present, I lead with, with, uh, with a frame around that, or that is the frame and some supporting evidence. But it'd be great to hear your point of view around that. Why is that the case? And, and what are the leaders going to do differently? I think the leaders, at least for the last 20 years, have always be, become companies that were more focused, not less focused. They figured out there's sort of three things. One, what businesses can we win at? 
What customer bases can we win at? Number two, what do we just need to be competitive in? We're not going to win. We're not going to beat the, the four largest banks and being a mass market retail bank. What, what can we do to be competitive? And then the last thing that gets the least amount of attention, but in a rapidly changing environment like we're in, should get a lot more attention is, what have we always done under the old structure or what, the way we've done it under the old structure that we should change today? In this complete digital revolution, front end, middle end, back end, what processes need to change to really fit where we're headed as opposed to where we've been? Very interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's not a newsflash to anybody that deposits need to be sticky and loyal, actually for the entire banking system to survive. So what do you think banks need to do differently now in this environment to create deeper loyalty and, and a stronger, more enduring customer franchise? Well, uh, you didn't pay me to say this, but th <laughs> this is certainly the time for personalization. Right. So ever since March 9th, when SVB was closed and there was a panic among uninsured depositors, it's been time for the, the banks have all responded by reaching out to their customers. Now, the banks that had better information about who those customers were before it all started uh, and had longer term relationships were in a much better position right at the start. But right now with pricing being, pricing is very personalized today. And you have to know which customers deserve that 5% uh, interest rate and which customers deserve the 2.5% interest rate. So I think if there was ever a time for personalization to, uh, to really reap the rewards, it was the first quarter, second and third quarters of this year. It's always going to be important, but it's, yeah. just, it's, it's just incredibly important in these uh, first three quarters of this year. Yeah. And I'm sure it takes on many different kinds of forms. You talked about pricing, even just around communicating with customers around the market environment, what they can be doing with their money, but doing it in a, as you said, in a more uh, tailored way for individuals. I think banks are finding much more receptivity to, for individuals saying, help me better understand how I'm situated and what to do with my money. I thought that was interesting on the JD Power survey of best uh, mobile banking applications and best online banking applications. And, and there was a distinction this year between the best regional banks and their mobile banking applications and the best of the largest banks and their mo mobile banking applications. And the distinction was who gave me better advice? Who gave mm. me personalized advice through a, a, uh, an AI bot? So, mm. It was Erica at Bank of America, and it was uh, Uno, I think it's called, uh, at uh, Capital One. But they have had the most uh, aggressive use of these uh, uh, artificial intelligence uh, advice giving. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, we've gone from give me my balance or tell me what checks have cleared to, you know, what do I do with this excess money? And, 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 and now they're proactively reaching out on a personalized basis with advice. And that caused a big separation in the Capital One and uh, Bank America's uh, mobile banking applications. Mm, yeah, it's fascinating. You know, and, and with the advent of these uh, these agents, the next push we see is 
making them more intelligent, like you're saying. So not just responding to questions, but responding with specific transaction detail or even being proactive. In fact, at the Digital Banking Conference, uh, Michelle Moore from Wells Fargo, she she talked about the the introduction of Fargo, this new experience at Wells, and how they're also trying to make it more intelligent. So we can see that there's this this trend, at least among banks that are really leaning into this space to develop more personalized engagement. Yeah, I think it's a it's a critical now. I will be honest that they one of the that there have been five ironies this year of things that I never would have thought happened at the beginning of the year that happened this year. One of them is if you would have said, okay, what's the key? What are the, the three keys to success in retail banking? One would be to provide the best ultimate customer experience, right? Part of that is is building trust among the customers. The leader in the best measure that I know, which is the net promoter score, was First Republic. So all that showed me fascinating is yeah. that you can be you can do a great job of delighting your customer, but yeah. if they feel that their money is threatened, they're out of there. Right. That's such a such an important point. How you need to be regardless of the kind of relationship you have. And you know, I've, I've also, and I'm sure you've been in discussions with many bank CEOs where they've said, you know, some of our best customers, you know, the, the church that had $10 million with us, we've had a 10-year relationship with us, is saying, I'm going to start to move my money around. So it, it, it underscores, of course, there's so much value in the relationship and the loyalty that's been developed, but it underscores how current you need to be in terms of how is that customer doing, even if they're a very loyal customer with their money situation right now, and how are you helping them or advising them? And do they trust you to be able to do that? Or, you know, you, you now seem to be more at risk. Deposits seem to be more at risk than they were before due to a variety of different factors. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think the relationship is, uh, is everything. And what I think we're learning is the relationship isn't just time, uh, but time is a factor. The relationship is, is about really, does the customer feel like that you, the bank, has their best interest at heart? And, uh, and that needs to be cultivated. Uh, and uh, uh, because the, the deposit yeah. runs at, at the, the, really the three banks were, were unusual events, but they, they awoke everybody else to that it, they have similarities to those three. They may not be exactly like those three, but they have similarities to, to them. Yeah, yeah. Tom, how do you see the economics of banking changing given all the different kind of uh, uh, trends that are occurring and, uh, and just changes in the kind of the relationship? How, how do you see the economics of banking changing? It's been remarkably adaptive. You would have told me in 2008 that the capital levels of the largest banks would double, capital ratios would double over the next 10 years. And they'd still be making right. a 15 to 18% return on tangible common equity. I would have bet you that that wouldn't happen. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and they did that in the face of some shrinking, some real pressures on fee income. Uh, and so the first thing I did, it's, it's been remarkably adaptive. Uh, I hope that one, uh, the changes coming out of the, what we experienced this year, I hope one of them isn't 
changing the capital ratios and raising those further. And I think they have to be very careful with changing the liquidity requirements because that's one where you push on one side of that balloon and you don't know what will happen on the other side of that balloon. Tom, you spend a good deal of time presenting to and hearing from from bank boards. And I'm curious as to your advice to some of them, particularly in light of the kinds of transformation efforts that banks are undertaking right now. Almost all banks are in some kind of transformation. It's a data transformation or a digital transformation, either front-end digital experience or back-end automation, or either in the midst of a core transformation or evaluating a core transformation. In light of all of these transformational efforts that are underway, how do you see the role of the bank board evolving or changing? Uh, I knew you would ask about uh, boards, and I have given a lot of presentations, particularly lately. So because of the how difficult it's been for bank stocks, uh, a lot of the boards are asking me to come in and say, what can we do to raise the valuation of our company? And it's just not that easy. But I, I really, as I thought about the question, I thought that, that there's a real difference. And um, if I'm looking at banks with over $50 billion in assets, there's really two types of boards. There's one type of board that is um, diverse and totally engaged. And there's another type of, of board that has made the mistake of becoming overly diverse and not engaged. And uh, those are the ones I worry about. When you look at the smaller banks, uh, you find that there's either engagement or not engagement. Um, but uh, I, I do think that some of the larger banks, in an effort to fill different spots around the, the board table, they, they did a disservice. And, and they brought in people, or they haven't made them actively engaged. It, it's not mm -hmm. just the bringing in process, but they haven't brought them up to speed. I mean, you go to a, a uh, you know, a Capital One board meeting or meet with their board members, and you compare it to a uh, to another bank that's uh, between fifty and a trillion dollars, and and there can be a night and day differences to knowledge level and and engagement. Mm -hmm. Too many of the ones. There are too many people sitting on these boards of the 50 to a trillion dollar banks that are there because they can get a, a paycheck. And uh, the, the ones that uh, are at the trillion dollar banks, they know the risk is too high. So yeah. the money isn't enough uh, for them. They have to, uh, to uh, they really care about their, uh, their board responsibilities. Yeah, interesting. We talked a little bit about this, um, but let's dig a little bit deeper in terms of the role of data and analytics specifically, and how, how can it help sustain customer relationships, particularly as we're seeing more and more movement towards digital channels and digital activity. And then many regional banks who really relied on that local relationship-based model need to somewhat rethink that model. Share, share your thoughts there in terms of what you see, how, that, uh, how some of these new capabilities should be embraced or how they're evolving, you know, the strategy of some of the regional banks. They're not evolving fast enough. You know, one of the things that attracted me to Personetics so many years ago was the, uh, you know, turning data into information that's actionable. Uh, and if I think back to what really got me excited about this was in 1990 with Capital One, as it was just developing 
the use of an information-based marketing strategy. So here we are 33 years later, and I would argue that there aren't many in the industry that have totally adopted a data-driven information-based marketing strategy throughout their organization. So, I mean, even human resources at Capital One is a data-driven information-based process. And uh, so I'm, I'm disappointed in the industry that now certain parts of the large banks, you know, the card operations at large regional banks will, will be uh, use an information-based strategy. But the thing about it that I loved was, and this is what uh, JP Morgan does with its stress testing, is that they'll create scenarios that, you know, the uh, Nigel Morris used to love to tell the story about, we would test outrageous late and over limit fees. And we never found one that was net uh, NPV negative, but they never went to the highest uh, late and over limit fees because what he called the mum uh, test, which is didn't pass what his, his mother would, yeah. would uh, approve of. But we don't do that. We don't test the outer limits of of profitability enough inside these uh, these uh, banks, and uh, I, I would like to see that process be accelerated here. Yeah, you know, it's an exciting time, I think, in the industry where there is a, particularly among some of the leaders and even many regional banks, mid-sized regional banks, they're embracing advanced data and analytics and delivering more personalized insights. Our, you know, our view is that that a basic version will become ubiquitous, but to differentiate, there's still so much room to grow, so much fertile ground to take where you can deliver. You talked about having personalized pricing. That's one element. But another element is we understand your transaction activity so well that, you know, if you were in this account, you could save this much money. Now, just imagine if I was to come to you as a customer and tell you that, you would think, boy, they're really looking out for me. You know, yes, I'm getting a different product, but it's a better product based on my transaction activity. And there's so much, uh, so much opportunity and room to grow, I think, to improve that interaction and frankly, change the, the dynamic of the relationship between customer and bank. You know, Jody, I, uh, I hate to admit this, but later this year, uh, I'll turn 65 <laughs> and uh, go on, you know, a government program for healthcare. And uh, you have to go on the, the program. And um, uh, there's, certain, there's many different options. Not one, I have four different checking accounts. Uh, not one bank came up to me and said, uh, yeah, they know my birth date. And, and said, okay, do you need some help looking at some of these options? And we partner with these other players over here and, uh, you know, let us come in and talk to you. I think that that's just a, a, a life event that yeah. all of us yeah. that are fortunate to get there are going to go through. And yeah. why a, a banking institution hasn't seized upon that as an entry point, uh, I'm a little surprised. Yeah, such a great point. And by the way, that's a very simple um, <clears throat> Uh, inference of that event because it's simply age-based. You can infer so many other things or imply so many other things based on transaction intelligence. And But you're absolutely right. You know, Leveraging that to then show customers that you really know them and then connecting your bank solutions with the needs that may not be being ex explicit, but 
rather that are implicit that you're 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 understanding through their transaction behavior. I, I think that's what certainly for for me and for for us that's what is so exciting is that I love the steps that the banks are taking right now, but there's so much more room to grow, and customers mm-hmm. will ultimately be the beneficiaries. And I think those banks that lean in also will create greater separation as well. So I had a son that uh, is 21, started to work last week at Coca-Cola. Congratulations. Uh, thanks. He, uh, <laughs> he uh, wants to talk tonight about his 401k options. And again, I, I'm wondering why his uh, primary banking organization uh didn't use age again as as a uh, factor that might have said, okay, you know, you're likely to be entering the workforce. Uh, you know, can we help you with some of these decisions that you're going to be faced with? Yeah, or recognizing that there's a new source of income, so he may have just uh, started a job or changed jobs. So, Tom, help us then uh, summarize, and maybe you can be a little bit forward-looking here. And I like to ask this of all of all the guests: what will customers expect in the next three to five years that banks in the industry aren't well prepared for? Well, I think we've seen it already. What they expect, they're going to expect more of. They're going to expect the ease that they've gotten with Amazon and other providers like that. We're still not easy enough. Opening accounts is still not as smooth as it should be. Opening a small business account is nowhere near as smooth as it should be. So that's something that we got to get continue to have to get better. And the other side of it is, do you know me? Stop. If you're, uh, I have one of my checking accounts is with Citi. Stop sending me a, uh, you know, a home equity loan solicitation uh, on every time I open up my mobile banking app. Uh, I mean, just, <laughs> there's, there's no personalization in that at, at all. Well, Tom, uh, again, it's been such a pleasure to uh, to engage with you over the years. I'm just very impressed with how you formulate your hypotheses and the kinds of uh, relationships that you have across the industry. So I thank you for for what you've shared with our audience and uh, and wish you the best. And hopefully you're right. We're in a good market and hopefully you can really capitalize on it. Great. Well, Jody, it's good to see you and we'll uh, see you in October, I hope. Will do. Thank you, Tom. Take care. Thank you for joining another episode of Banking on Innovation. Make sure you subscribe to get future podcast episodes or follow us on Twitter at Personetics or on Personetics.com. Personetics.com.